What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, wherever you get podcasts. Hello. And welcome to Plotting Through the Presidents. I'm Howard Dory. I'm his wife, Jessica Dory. And we are back with another irreverent dive into a lesser known story about the early American presidents and founders. One of my many goals for this season, I mean, we have many goals for this season, but one of my many goals is to figure out a way to prop this microphone so it's not in between my legs. I would like not to be straddling the microphone anymore or any longer. I think we'd be more comfortable if we didn't have to pole dance on the microphone. Agree to disagree. (laughs) Um, I have a question for you. Really? What's the best thing that happened during this pandemic? Wow. Um, The best thing that's happened in this pandemic is I think the closeness our family has come to. You know, we are in each other's space every day, and that has some challenges. But I also think we've become very close-knit and very in tune with each other. Yeah, I think... Is that what you were going to say? Well, one of our children actually learned to walk during this pandemic. The other Mm -hmm. one's learning to read. Mm -hmm. These are all good answers, but they are wrong. Oh, of course they are. I have the answer. The answer. The best thing that happened during this pandemic was Hamilton coming to Disney Plus. Oh, gosh, yeah. More than a year before it was supposed to come to theaters. That definitely was a highlight, <laughs> for sure. I, I remember the. there's been a few highlights like that, and usually it's involving television. <laughs> but I have to say that Hamilton on TV, on Disney Plus, was super highlight and brought me through the roller coaster of emotions just like in person. And uh, we'll have to watch that again. Absolutely. Sometime. Today, we're going to talk about one aspect of Hamilton's life that the musical just barely touched on. Really? His relationship with... Dun-dun-dun! John Adams. (laughs) Specifically, the gloriously intense mutual hatred (sighs) that these two had for each other and their epic struggle for power and respect. It's so interesting when, like, two geniuses hate each other. For sure. And you have to think, I mean, people who have genius aspects of themselves, I think, have some social problems sometimes. I think that's applicable here. (laughs) Um, In the musical, Hamilton makes a reference to the musical 1776, actually, where Sit Down John was a big thing. And Lin-Manuel Miranda, as Hamilton, stands on the balcony and he says, Sit Down John, you fat mother, and the rest is bleeped. That is perhaps the most historically accurate thing about the show. (laughs) And I love the show. Right. So today we're going to get into just why Hamilton hated John Adams so much and just how beautifully reciprocated those feelings were in their own nasty words. (laughs) I mean, it was it was Hamilton who wrote like 95 pages regarding his affair. Yeah. If Hamilton was willing to write that much shit about himself, imagine what he wrote about (laughs) other people. Exactly. I mean, he probably wrote novels. Yes. The seeds of this sour relationship were planted during the Revolutionary War, and they really bloomed during Adams's presidency. 
But this hate was so strong that it kept flowering long after Hamilton's death. Oh, my goodness. It might not seem fair to keep up a feud with someone after they're dead, but tell that to John Adams. <laughs> There's so. a few people that I, I have some grudges against, even though they, they've died. Okay. You know, Hitler. <laughs> yeah, is that, I mean, okay. <laughs> that, does that not count? Why are you looking at me with such suspicion? I don't know if grudge is the right word, because grudge in, implies like a personal relationship. That's true. I did not have a personal relationship. Um, with with Hitler. Okay. Um, but That's on the record now. <laughs> I mean, okay. Grudge is the wrong word. We can go off on semantics, but you understand what I'm saying. Just because someone's died doesn't mean your feelings about them go away. For sure. Yeah. That's the, on- that's the only point I'm trying to make. You've, you've made that point well. Okay. Now, five minutes in and we've already gone to Hitler. <laughs> so I don't know where we go from there. Um, why don't we take a step back to the revolution? John Adams really made a name for himself before the war broke out. Let me just paint a quick picture of who he was at that time. Okay. He was a country lawyer, as we like to say. Country lawyer. From Massachusetts, he'd become known as the Atlas of Independence for his persuasive skills. He served on the committee to write the Declaration of Independence with Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin. He served in France and England as a diplomat. He helped secure some of the much-needed loans from Holland to finance the revolution. He was a big deal and he knew it. Now, Hamilton was 20 years younger. He wasn't around for all this pre-war stuff, and Adams always saw him as a newcomer because of that. Like, get that damn kid off my revolution. Yeah, like green and young. Yeah, cocky. Mm-hmm. Hamilton was born on the Caribbean island of Nevis. He showed so much promise as a writer that his fellow islanders took up a collection to send him far, far away to school in the United States. He was smart and ambitious, and he yearned for glory, kind of like Adams. When Hamilton was just 15, he said he wished for a war so that he could prove himself, and his wish came true. Wow. Well, I'm kind of skeptical of anyone who wishes for a war. I mean, that's just a little bit. But they didn't have, like, Netflix back then. (laughs) War was their main entertainment? Yeah, that was a a job opportunity, opportunity to, to rise up, opportunity for glory, Yeah, Yeah, I guess there's a lot of positive connotations surrounding war at that time, it sounds like. But I mean, similar to World War II, there was, I mean, my grandfather often described joining the army as like this positive movement to support your country. Yeah, definitely. The honor behind it, the opportunity to fight for your country. uh, For me, the connotation is pure death. I can't seem to get my mind, you know, away from that. That's... That rubs me the wrong way that he was hoping for a war. That makes sense. And as far as death superseding everything, I mean, I think back then death was more of a reality and people were maybe more accustomed to it. They saw it more often. It was happening. So the idea that you could die early or at any time, you might as well try to choose some glorious way to do it. Interesting. Okay. He ended up serving as an aide to George Washington in a role that was basically like the chief of staff to the commander in chief. Mm hmm. Hamilton was a big deal, too, and he definitely knew it. So during the war, Adams was like this committee man, and Hamilton was much more in the trenches. This is where Hamilton's dislike of Adams started, because Adams did a couple of things back then that Hamilton never really forgot. For one, Adams thought the army should re-enlist men every year, that this might help recruitment. Hamilton thought that would cost them all their soldiers if they could all go home after a year. He thought Adams was just ridiculously out of touch with reality for thinking that that was a good idea. Hmm. And then even worse, Adams said that maybe even the commander in chief should change every year. Oh, my goodness. 
Hamilton took that as a huge insult to Washington, who was his hero, his mentor, his father figure. Mm-hmm. Adams was just leery of giving the leader of the military too much power. And that would be a recurring theme in their relationship. Fast forward to the election of 1789. This is the very first election under the new constitution. It's going to determine our first president. Everybody knew that it had to be George Washington. Mm -hmm. I mean, the role of president was basically written for him. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was there at the constitutional convention as the president of the constitutional convention (laughs) where they're coming up with what kind of leader the country should have. Right. So they're like, hmm, what do we want? Do we want a prime minister? Maybe a group of three leaders. And he's sitting in the front of the room like, president. (laughs) What's that, Mr. President, uh, of this thing that we're doing? Oh, oh, president. That that sounds good. Okay. Yeah, he didn't he didn't guide that at all. I mean, just his very presence basically was screaming what the country needed. (laughs) Yeah. So it's election time. And all that the electors have to do is vote for Washington and then he'll be the president. Right. Right. Not quite. Well, he had no running mate, did he? Running mates weren't really a thing yet. The way they voted for president back then was a disaster waiting to happen. So each elector got to cast two electoral ballots for president. So it's like, who do you want to be president? Pick two. There's no voting for vice president. Mm -hmm. Whoever got the most votes would become president, and whoever came in second would be vice president. I can kind of see how people thought that would be a good idea. It's it's the kind of thing that might happen in a clubhouse, you know? Yeah. And I, I can see going in that direction, but it takes a lot of foresight to understand why that's going to go downhill quickly. Well, there was a lot of room for error. And it meant that the president and the vice president could be from two different parties, which didn't work out very well. But in in the very beginning, for maybe two years, the founders really thought, we're not going to have political parties. We don't need to plan for that kind of thing. They were wrong. Clearly. So everyone had decided that Washington should be president. Most people were cool with John Adams being vice president, or as Adams called it, the most insignificant office that ever the invention of man contrived. Oh, ouch. But Hamilton was freaking out that somehow more people would intend to vote for Adams as vice president than would intend to vote for Washington for president. He wanted to make damn sure that there was no way that Adams could somehow come out on top. So Hamilton talked to some of the electors and he made sure they knew to cast one of their votes for Washington and their other vote for not John Adams. What? Adams found out about this years later and he was furious. Even though Hamilton's goal really was just to make sure that Washington was the president, Adams still felt like he'd been done dirty. Well, yeah, it's hard to know that there's someone out there trying to sabotage your success. I mean, that's how Burr felt about Hamilton. Yeah. I mean, at least in Hamilton, the theatric. (laughs) Yeah, sabotaging their success and the power struggle is really the theme of their relationship throughout. Yeah, exactly. Let's flash forward again four years to the election of 1792 the second ever election. Mm-hmm. Washington and Adams are both reelected, which is a pretty good accomplishment for Adams because he was useless in the role of vice president. He spent as much time as he could at home with Abigail. Mm-hmm. So Washington really kept him at a distance anyway. Mm-hmm. But even when Washington did think, oh, I should consult Adams, Adams wasn't even around. And It's not like we could text. No. You know, what are your thoughts on this policy? No, the reception was really bad back then. <laughs> During Washington's second term, that's when any last vestiges of of goodwill from becoming the United States, those warm, fuzzy new country feelings were gone. Mm -hmm. The novelty is over. Yes. Uh, That's when a bitter two-party system was forming. 
mm-hmm. and Alexander Hamilton was the driving force behind it. He's George Washington's Secretary of the Treasury, and he becomes the head of the new Federalist Party. Adams is part of this party too, but if it were an actual like party party, Adams wouldn't be invited. <laughs> he's he's just kind of there. Mm-hmm. The Federalist. He's like a wallflower. I mean, yeah. I mean, he's respected. He's the vice president, but he's not really active in defining the party or where it goes or what policies mm, are. He lacked purpose. Yeah, he was pretty bored back then. But he was a family man at that time. His his home life seemed to be thriving. Yeah. This comes back to the work, you know, home balance that we're all trying to (laughs) strive for. So the Federalists, that party, they're all about a strong federal government, keeping close ties with Britain, because that's our biggest trade partner. And then there's the Democratic Republicans like Jefferson and Madison. And they're more pro-France, anti-Britain, and all about states' rights, um, like the right to keep slaves. Mm Mm-hmm. By the way, at this time, George Washington was 100% in the Federalist Party. Even though he liked to think he was above it all and he warned against parties, the Federalist Party was built around him, kind of like a treehouse is built around a mighty oak. Mm, wow. That's a beautiful analogy. Well, thank you. Um, and Alexander Hamilton was the one with the hammer and the nails. Okay. That's the, building. Yeah, He's the building metaphor around doesn't go on wa- anymore. Yeah, no, I like the metaphor. Yeah. I, building. Washington's the mighty, I mean, I don't need to break it down. It's pretty obvious, but Washington's the mighty oak. I like thinking him as a mighty oak, first of all. Yeah. And then Hamilton is the builder of structure around him. Yeah. I mean, that treehouse would not be built if either of them were not in the picture. No. That's all I've got. (laughs) I love it. All right. So now we are going to take another leap forward four years to the next election of 1796. We're on the third election now. Yes. George Washington decides not to run again. He's going to retire and no one can stop him. He wanted to retire four years ago, but Mm -hmm. everybody begged him to stay for the sake of the country. And he did. But this time he was out, out of public life forever. Mm. Gone, retired. Don't call him up. He's not coming back. (laughs) Right. So the big question is, who's going to succeed George Washington? Yeah. John Adams thinks he's the heir apparent, like he's got it in the bag, almost like he deserves it. Right. Which, does he? I mean, maybe he does. I don't know. It's a good question. It ends up coming down to Vice President Adams and the former Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson. Mm -hmm. Adams wins, probably on the strength of having been Washington's VP, Mm -hmm. uh, even though they weren't close at all. Uh, I'm sure that I'm oversimplifying some things, too, and I'm I'm trying to just give you enough background to really see these two characters of Hamilton and Adams and how they interacted. So this is act one background. Sure. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) This is the moment that really changes everything for Hamilton when Mm -hmm. Adams becomes president. Before this, Hamilton was used to being one of the most powerful and influential men in the country Mm -hmm. with close access to Washington. But now his access to the president was gone. But that didn't stop him from trying. Mm -hmm. He was not one to give up. Early on, he wrote to the new President Adams with some policy ideas. Adams Mm -hmm. did not appreciate the advice. (laughs) Adams said the long, elaborate letter with a whole system of instruction for the conduct of the president and Congress Mm -hmm. was the product of a man in a delirium. I can see that. I can totally see why he might have that opinion. Yeah, and he tossed it. I mean, can you imagine you've been doing this for years and some green, you know, kid, 20 years, your junior, writes you a letter of how things should be done? I might be annoyed. 
Yeah, and I think that perspective actually goes both ways. Because mm-hmm. Adams has been doing this political thing for a long time, mm-hmm. but he hasn't been running the government. Right. Like Hamilton kind of has. Right. So Adams is thinking, who is this twerp? And Hamilton is thinking, who is this inept guy? Right. I got to tell him how to run the government because right. I've been doing it. Can you imagine how much better their relationship would be if they just had a more open communication with each other and, and just didn't have so much self-pride? I feel like there's so much potential in this relationship to That's the thing. Yeah, they were so miss potential. Miss potential in the relationship to grow with each other yeah. and to help each other. Because they probably they probably did both have, you know, elements of knowledge that the other didn't. And it just would it's a missed opportunity. It would have been quite the team up. Yeah. Oh well. So Adams tossed that letter, but <laughs> If he thought it was going to be that easy to get rid of Hamilton's influence, (laughs) he had another think coming. He had to say that again. He had another think coming. Think? Yeah, it's actually think, not thing. Oh, I thought you were trying to say thing. No, a lot of people think that, but it's really think. What? I know, it's one of those weird phrases. Okay, you just blew my mind. Have you known this all along or did you just discover this? Because I've never heard you say another think coming. It's not something I use very often. I mean, and it wasn't true. it wasn't in my little script outline here either. It just kind of <laughs> just kind of came. Well, I've never heard you say that. I'm going to say it more often. Okay, please yeah. do because I'm all a little time. bit disturbed. So Ben Franklin once said that John Adams was always an honest man, often a great one, but sometimes absolutely mad. And I once wrote about some of the absolutely maddest things that Adams had done, but I forgot maybe the biggest one. Hmm. The dumbest thing Adams ever did. When he became president, he kept every member of Washington's cabinet. Oh, man. Talk about low morale in the office. (laughs) I guess after working for Washington, suddenly working for John Adams would be quite the shift. I mean, it just and then suddenly you have to work for someone who wasn't even very present and also not as popular. It just might be like, you're absolutely right. I mean, back then, the cabinet was just four members. Secretary of State, Secretary of the Treasury, Secretary of War, and the Attorney General. And each of these men, they were used to being in Washington's administration, which was, I won't say controlled, because that's not quite fair, but heavily influenced by Hamilton. Mm -hmm. So now Adams's closest advisors were basically Hamilton loyalists, and they were still prepared to answer to Hamilton, even though he wasn't in the government anymore. Another reason why morale might be low for everybody. (laughs) It's not the best workplace. Right, exactly. Adams really only had himself to blame for not picking a new cabinet that he could trust. I don't know what he thought, that there would be continuity and that these men, if Washington thought they were good enough, then they were good enough for him. Eventually, he figured out what was going on with his cabinet and Hamilton, and he got rid of most of them. But by then, it was too late. What was too late? It was near the end of his presidency. Uh And I mean, the damage had kind of been done. Yeah, he couldn't turn it around. But... Before that, Adams was starting to suspect that maybe Hamilton was still wielding undue influence. And that's when he heard about Hamilton's efforts to make sure he wasn't the president way back in the election of 1789. Such a burn. He wrote to Abigail about it. He said, Hamilton, I know to be a proud, spirited, conceited, aspiring mortal, always pretending to morality, with as debauched morals as old Franklin, who is more his model than anyone I know. As great a hypocrite as any in the U.S., His intrigues in the election I despise. That he has talents I admit, but I dread none of them. I shall take no notice of his puppyhood, but retain the same opinion of him I always had, and maintain the same conduct towards him I always did. That is, keep him at a distance. Hmm. Wow. Uh, He called him a puppy. 
Yeah, which was one of the biggest insults back yeah. then. If that letter had been from... made public, <laughs> whoa, buddy. I mean, uh, there was nothing There would have worse. been a duel. Yeah, the, them stealing words. There's nothing worse <laughs> that you could call a man. <laughs> wow. But poor John Adams. He actually thinks that he can keep Hamilton at a distance. Yeah, I think he definitely underestimated Hamilton's ways, his divisiveness. And world events. Keeping Hamilton at a distance would prove impossible because of uh, France. Yeah, oh gosh. One Day University is an innovative company that just recently went online, making incredible professors available to anyone with a computer or a smartphone. These professors are chosen based on the ratings of the students throughout the country, including Harvard, Yale, Stanford, Columbia, UCLA. I first heard of them because they partnered with the Los Angeles Times to bring Professor Louis Mazur here to do a talk on Jefferson and Hamilton called The Rivalry That Shaped America. If I recall, my dad got this for you as a gift. Yes. Which was such a good gift idea for you because it still sticks with you today. And it's something you can revisit now anytime. I know we're talking about Hamilton and Adams right now. But Jefferson and Hamilton were on a whole other playing field. And Professor Mazur really helped contextualize that. There's just nothing like smart, passionate people who are really good at telling stories. One Day University is an incredibly affordable way to bring top-notch lectures to you. One Day University is just about learning for the sake of learning, and every talk is just an hour. Memberships are just $7.95 a month, but for our listeners, you can try it out for one month completely free. And you get to access their entire video library and more, which I feel an addiction coming on. Every weekday, you can get a new live online talk with some of the world's best professors. Just visit OneDayU.com. That's O-N-E-D-A-Y, the letter U, and enter the promo code PLOTTING. P-L-O-D-D-I-N-G. This is a really convenient and quality way to grow your brain. So do it. Do it. The most pressing issue of Adams' presidency was our rocky relationship with France at the time. Mm -hmm. So quick background, strap in. Mm -hmm. Act 2A, France background. The quasi-war, you could call it. Oh, man. Well, this is what everyone wanted, apparently. Some kind of war. Yeah. To, you know, establish their glory. That's right. Quick background. Um, It's important to note the United States probably wouldn't even exist without the help of France in the Revolutionary War. Mm Mm-hmm. But then France and Britain got into another one of their endless wars, and all Washington wanted to do was stay neutral, which pissed off both countries. Then we went and signed the Jay Treaty with Britain, which France thought was way too friendly with Britain. So France started intercepting some of our ships, trading with Britain, and just being a real asshole on the seas. All of this is happening while they're also cutting people's heads off left and right, including the kings in their own revolution and the reign of terror. Right. It's a mess. Oh my gosh, France, man. Yeah, we just want to stay out of it, but they keep dragging us in. France has some bloody history. Yeah. Some really bloody history. They're good at it. Yeah, it makes them so fascinating. For sure. But And fun to visit. So what's Hamilton doing at this point? Well, he's secretly advising the Secretary of War, James McHenry, because he liked to run things. And he ghost wrote a proposal for McHenry to submit to Congress for a special commission to France to try to smooth things over. So three American ambassadors are sent to France and they end up meeting with three secret agents working on behalf of, I don't know, whatever form of government France had that week. (laughs) Those secret French agents made it clear that France would be happy to negotiate with them if the U.S. paid them a big old bribe and a loan. That's just how France did business back then. (laughs) Um, But it was hugely offensive to the Americans. Right. I can't imagine why. 
Congress demanded the commission's papers and Adams handed them over after the names of the secret agents had been redacted and replaced with the letters X, Y, and Z. And that's how this became known as the XYZ affair. Oh, interesting. Yeah, shit hit the fan. The Federalists wanted war with France. And the Democratic Republicans, at this point, they had no way to defend the behavior of their beloved France. Adams embraced the righteous anger of the people, saying that the honor of our nation is now universally at stake. Nothing but arms and energy can protect us. So this is actually the peak of Adams as president, Mm -hmm. his popularity. Mm -hmm. Everybody's against France, and Adams is this unifying leader. He starts wearing military regalia at this time. Wow. Even though he was never in the military. (laughs) And he tells the country they should adopt a warlike character. Wow. So the country starts preparing for war with France, which means raising an army. And there's no standing army at the time right now. So they'd have to start one from scratch. That sounds like a long, difficult process. There's only one man in the United States who had experience leading an army. Hamilton and Washington. George Washington. Yeah. He's 66 years old at the time and retired forever, but he's still alive. So Adams names him as the commander in chief without even asking him. Oh, my God. Yeah. Good old George could not catch a break. See, again, that's just socially not responsible. <laughs> it's, it's not the polite thing to do. No, you can't enlist somebody without telling them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, in American history, you certainly can, <laughs> but usually not the commander in chief. It's not the way to keep your bridges strong. No. It's not something someone does if they are avoiding confrontation. That's all I have to say. It just would lead to confrontation down the road. And I just. It led to some confrontations. George could not refuse a call to service. He was back with conditions. Mm -hmm. Washington told Adams, I'll accept the command on the condition that you appoint these three men as my commanding officers. And of course, Hamilton was one of them. Hamilton was at the top of the list. I'm sure. It was clear as day that Washington wrote the names in order and he wanted his right hand man to be Hamilton. That's why he put him on the top of the list. Okay. But Adams was looking at that list like, um, well, I'm the president. Maybe I can rearrange this. Let's see, move Hamilton to the bottom. He wrote a letter complaining about Washington's demands, saying, if I should consent to the appointment of Hamilton as a second in rank, I should consider it as the most irresponsible action of my whole life and the most difficult to justify. But he never sent the letter. I just, yeah, I don't know. Adams is being very difficult. That's a recurring theme. (laughs) You just can't enlist somebody, A, without telling them, and then B, be angry about any kind of conditions they bring to the table. Yeah. It's like these are people and human beings, not like your pawns. So Adams does reluctantly send their nominations to the Senate in the order that Washington requested. But then he remembers, oh, yeah, I really hate Hamilton. And he changes his mind and tries to get it reversed. Oh, my God. What is wrong with him? Uh, He really hates Hamilton. I guess, but I don't know. I feel like... For me, even though I love John Adams, you know, he's one of my favorites. I love him, too. But when when he squares off against Hamilton, nobody comes out as a hero. He just, yeah, he's acting so immature right now. Well, there's there's immaturity on both sides. So so wait for that. I haven't heard. I mean, Hamilton is, yes, I agree, conceited and probably invasive in some ways. But I haven't heard immaturity. At this point, I've only seen attempts to collaborate. Sounds like you're clearly in the Hamilton camp. At the moment. All right. We'll we'll, see how it changes. We'll see. So that pissed off Hamilton and Big Daddy Washington. Don't piss off Big Daddy. Washington writes to Adams, and a letter from George Washington like this is a big deal. Washington writes to Adams, You have been pleased to order the last to be first and the first to be last? 
So this was George Washington. Like almost everything he wrote had a shade of who do you think you are? Well, exactly. There was definitely like an element of, of Meryl Streep and the Devil Wears Prada to George Washington. <laughs> like, Hamilton would be, I guess, like Emily Blunt. Right. Or maybe Stanley Tucci. You I don't mean know. Adams would be Emily Blunt? No, I think Adams might be Anne Hathaway. Emily Blunt. I love her. She, um, yeah. Can do no wrong. It's not a perfect metaphor, but. I get it now. Now it's in your head. I was confused about who was who. That's all. <laughs> all right. So Washington explained exactly why he made the decision he made to Adams. And he really went to bat for Hamilton. He said he knew that some people thought Hamilton was an ambitious man and therefore a dangerous one. That he is ambitious, I readily grant. But it is of that laudable kind which prompts a man to excel in whatever he takes in hand. He is enterprising, quick in his perceptions, and his judgment intuitively great. Yeah. I mean, he's one of the reasons Washington became that old oak. Yeah. With a treehouse around him. Right. I mean, he really built him up. So all of this, by the way, is after the Reynolds pamphlet came out. After Hamilton basically committed career suicide by admitting to an affair and blackmail. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can check out our episode three of The Scandalmonger's Revenge for more details about that Reynolds pamphlet. Season one. Yeah. Part of the reason that that scandal didn't completely destroy Hamilton's reputation is that George Washington stood by him. Must be nice. So Adams had no choice but to name Hamilton as Washington's second in command. This was John Adams's worst nightmare. Mm-hmm. The guy who was already trying to run his administration was suddenly, in effect, the commander in chief of the U.S. Army, one of the most powerful men in the United States. Yeah. And Hamilton went to work putting together an army of 10,000 men that Congress had authorized. Yeah, if he had just accepted it and worked with him, I think. Again, they could have done great things. If he had just accepted working with a man who was trying to infiltrate his administration, ordering around his own secretaries, telling him what to do. Okay, so you're saying he not only was invasive and over-opinionated, he was actually trying to sabotage Adams's ways by infiltration? I don't know if I would use the word sabotage yet, but he was trying to still run things. Through, through a back door, kind of just yeah. independently with them as opposed to going through Adam. So yeah, that's not cool. Yeah, there was a lot of backdoor action going on. <laughs> Sexy. <laughs> not, no, it's not actually. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> Some historians think that what Hamilton wanted most in the world was military fame and that he was trying to build the U.S. Army not just to defend the country, but to suppress domestic dissent. That's probably not the case. He was actually still in favor of negotiating with France to avoid war. But Hamilton absolutely believed that a standing army was essential to America defending itself against foreign invasion. And he thought, hey, maybe having a standing army, we could just pop over to Spanish Florida and Louisiana and just take it for the United States. (laughs) He had ambitions. Power-hungry ambitions. Yeah. Hamilton is busy trying to build up the military, but he still has to go through Adams to get stuff done. Like raising troops, getting supplies, all that good stuff. Adams didn't want to lift a finger to give Hamilton a standing army. The way Adams looked at it, he was afraid that if Hamilton got his army, they would need a second one to disband the first. So Hamilton gets fed up with Adams. And he, at this point, he starts straight up directing the Secretary of War to ignore the president and just do what he says. Ooh. And that's like treason in a monarchy. It's treacherous for sure. As frustrated as Hamilton is by Adams... 
um, Hamilton is still kind of enjoying his power under George Washington and putting this army together and Mm -hmm. making all these minute decisions about what the military uniforms would look like and all these Hamilton was organizing every part of this army that who knew if they would ever even get to fight. But that's what he's busy doing. Then in December 1799, George Washington, the father of his country, dies. Mm. He was so close to making it to the 1800s. Didn't Mm -hmm. happen. His death, of course, means that he gets tons of honor and attention and eulogies and there's a nation in mourning, none of which Adams really loved because it was just one last reminder of how he could never get out of Washington's shadow. Right. He could never be who Washington was. No. He was always second banana even when he was president. And now that Washington was out of the way, Hamilton expected to be officially promoted to the commander-in-chief position. Mm-hmm. Adams does not give him this honor mm. because he's trying to establish peace with France. And that would have the added bonus of making Hamilton and the whole standing army unnecessary. Mm. So it's, it's just complicated. It is. A, it's a bit complicated. There's a lot of power struggles going on yeah, right now. Yeah, well, that's what I mean. Just the power struggles are complicated. Yeah. There's a lot of at stake on both sides. Adams decides to send a peace commission to France, which is like the beginning of the end of the quasi-war. But that would mean the end of Hamilton's military career because, I mean, the country, they were all about building up an army to defeat France. But if France wasn't really worth the effort, they didn't want to keep paying taxes to pay for this army. Right. Hamilton still held out hope that maybe he could influence Adams with his charming, persuasive skills. (laughs) Uh, If not in writing, then in person. Oh, gosh. So the day after Adams announces this peace commission, Hamilton showed up at the boarding house where Adams was staying. He confronted the president for hours. Jeez. He rambled about how changes in the French government might restore a monarchy and the peace commission should wait. And Adams later said that the little man, as he liked to call (laughs) Hamilton, uh, was wrought up in heat and effervescence. And he said that he heard him out with perfect good humor, though never in my life did I hear a man talk more like a fool. Wow. It just seems like neither of them work well with others. (laughs) No, especially each other. Especially each other, but they've had problems just in general with others. So the army was finally disbanded, and Adams was pretty pleased with himself. I mean, mostly for achieving peace. That's a pretty big deal. And for squashing Hamilton, who he said, save for me, would have involved us in a foreign war with France and a civil war with ourselves. Hmm. Hamilton was not happy with Adams, believe it or not. Uh, biographer, Shocking. Yeah. Biographer Ron Cherno put it this way. He was unaccustomed to failure. And here he had devoted a year and a half of his life to an aborted army. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that's devastating. Yeah. And if he was pissed then, I mean, nothing pissed off Alexander Hamilton more than hearing someone was talking shit about him. Right. And then he heard Adams was accusing him of being part of a British faction. Okay. So now, now Hamilton is pissed off. Even more pissed. He, he heard that Adams was talking about him and basically saying that Hamilton's allegiance was to Britain and not the United States. Right. So Alexander wrote him a letter demanding evidence. And those demands back then were understood to be Hamilton actually initiating an affair of honor with Adams. That's the kind of language you only use if you want to challenge someone to a duel. Oh, my goodness. So Hamilton was walking right up to the edge of challenging the sitting president of the United States to a duel. Yep, that's pretty cocky. A little bit. (laughs) As angry and moody as John Adams often was, he was too smart to let his anger get the best of him. He didn't even respond to Hamilton. That probably pissed him off even more. Yeah, and he wrote back. 
Hamilton wrote a follow-up calling the allegations against him a base, wicked, and cruel calumny, destitute even of a plausible pretext to excuse the folly or mask the depravity which must have dictated it. I love your hand movements as you're doing these quotes. It keeps me awake. <laughs> well, it's just, it's very Edith Piaf. Oh, thank you. Wow, really? Like uh, Lavian Rose? Like I'm. Well, just your hands are out and ta- you're talking with your hands as you're quoting. I love it. it reminds you. me of Edith Piaf when she's singing. Her right. hands were out and almost reaching out to pull the emotion out of whoever she's singing to. That's what I'm doing here. That's what you're doing. Pulling it out. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> So this letter um, permanently ended the contact between Adams and Hamilton. They never wrote to each other or spoke to each other again. Just to be clear, Hamilton wrote to Adams twice and Adams didn't respond either time. Right. Because Hamilton was basically demanding evidence for these claims he heard that Adams had said and it was just ridiculous. Yeah. And so Adams has been silent at this point, which is just infuriating Hamilton even more. And then so he's written twice now. And then what happens? Uh, what happens is that Adams keeps talking shit in private. Mm-hmm. If Hamilton knew what Adams was saying about him in his private letters, he might have pushed even more for a duel. Mm-hmm. So to Adams, Hamilton was a man that he considered to be in a delirium of ambition. Adams wrote that Hamilton had fixed his eye on the highest station in America, and he hated every man, young or old, who stood in his way. Mm-hmm. He also thought Hamilton was a drunk. Mm. He told Jefferson that Hamilton was an insolent coxcomb who rarely dined in good company where there was good wine without getting silly and vaporing about his administration like a young girl about her brilliance and trinkets. Oh, you know, I was going to say I'm like a coxcomb. Coxcomb? Coxcomb. (laughs) I enjoy some wine at parties. Do you get silly and start vaporing about your trinkets? Well, that's where it got insulting. So now I can't relate to that anymore. Yeah, Adams was basically looking at like, how many insults can I pack into one yeah. sentence? Right. And he was very good at that. But I just don't like bringing women into it at all. And using stereotypes about women just makes it kind of insulting. Yeah, so. I could see that. So not only that, Adams also thought that Hamilton was a drug addict. Adams said once that Hamilton's success was due to drug use, saying that he heard Hamilton never wrote or spoke at the bar or elsewhere without a bit of opium in his mouth. Oh, baby. Yeah, no evidence for that, but (laughs) that that doesn't stop Adams from spreading it. Of course. Like a schoolgirl himself. Right. If you don't mind the analogy. Um, Yeah, there you go again. (laughs) You know, you look back at some of these geniuses and you have to think there. I mean, with Hamilton, there must have been some kind of mania involved. He's, he did seem manic. Yeah, I'll give you that. Will you? Oh, yeah. You'll give me that? Doesn't he seem a little bit manic? Yeah, and I think Adams, um, I mean, if they were one person, they would absolutely be bipolar. I mean, Adams and a lot of the Adams family kind of suffered from depression. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. Lots if, of lows. Yeah, and there, there may have been highs for Adams, but you don't see the same kind of manic behavior that you see in Hamilton. Right. There's definitely a mania that came off as ambition, but it also, I mean... He could just bust out 95 pages and he could talk, you know, a delirium. And it just sounds a lot like mania. Yeah. Adams was also responsible for spreading the idea that Hamilton was a walking pervert. He wrote that Hamilton's fornications, adulteries, and incest were propagated far and wide. Incest? He was probably referring to rumors that Hamilton slept with his wife's sister, Angelica. Oh, No real evidence of that. And Adams hated Hamilton so much that he was willing to believe and spread anything bad about him. Mm -hmm. 
also kind of immature. Yeah. Abigail just thought that Hamilton was straight up evil. She called him a cock sparrow, and she was afraid he was going to stage a coup against her husband. Oh, gosh. She once said, oh, I have read his heart and his wicked eyes. The very devil is in them. They are lasciviousness itself. Well, I trust anything she says, so <laughs> I would agree with Abigail. <laughs> she, she was not a fan of the men. No. I don't, I don't believe Hamilton would have ever challenged Abigail Adams to a duel, but that <laughs> would have been something. Um, Adams also called Hamilton the bastard brat of a Scotch peddler and a Creole bastard, and he criticized him for not being a native of the United States. Mm-hmm. Not his best work. No. No. Yeah. And that brings us to the election of 1800. Okay. So at what act are we in now? Act one? I didn't number are these we, acts. There's, no, I know there's you didn't. I'm trying to number them. You could, We've gone through the background. But what was act two? Act two was the quasi-war. Okay. Act two was the quasi-war. Now we're in act three. The election of 1800. Okay. All right. <laughs> Our final election of the day. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Thank you. It was hugely contentious between Adams and Jefferson and Aaron Burr. What contention? (laughs) Believe it or not, Hamilton was on the sidelines pushing for his own Federalist candidate, Charles Pinckney, instead of Adams. And if Pinckney couldn't win, well, he'd rather have Jefferson than Adams. Wow. Hamilton wrote to a friend that... And And Hamilton and Jefferson weren't exactly chummy. No, no. (laughs) But he would rather him over Adams. Yeah. And Adams and Hamilton, it bears repeating, were part of the same party. They had same basic beliefs about the role of government. Right. It was just personality clashes right. that, that blew everything up. Hamilton wrote to a friend that Adams was a very unfit and incapable character. He said his mind was made up. And he said, I will never more be responsible for him by my direct support, even though the consequence should be the election of Jefferson. If we must have an enemy at the head of the government, let it be one whom we can oppose and for whom we are not responsible who will not involve our party in the disgrace of his foolish and bad measures. Under Adams, as under Jefferson, the government will sink. The party in the hands of whose chief it shall sink will sink with it, and the advantage will all be on the side of his adversaries. Wow, that is, that is intense. That is, <laughs> it's like we're going down. Our ship is going down regardless which party is going to go down with it. And that was how he made that decision. But it's, it's, quite conniving incredibly conniving and machiavellian and and it just makes him sound like a political hack yeah i mean but or some kind of evil genius you know yeah it's just yeah it's a little bit shocking he seems to care more about getting a political advantage for his party than doing what was best for the country oh imagine that yeah not great (sighs) then he got tired of criticizing adams in private he decided to take his case to the public. Mm-hmm. With the help of his spies on the inside, Adams's cabinet members, he decided to stop Adams from winning the election of 1800 by doing the one thing he was both best and worst at. Monogamy. <laughs> writing. Oh, well, he was the best at writing. Yeah, writing himself into a hole or his own grave. Well, but that's debatable. I mean, he may have also covered up one of the biggest financial scandals with the writing. So, I I mean... Touché. He clearly was a good writer. I mean, he... He He was a prolific writer. Yes, but his writing also had a lot of um, weight. 
he was able to write himself Yeah, if you print it out, it's pretty weighty, <laughs> which I did with this letter. Oh, no. Really? Yeah. That's why we keep running out of ink. It's Alexander Hamilton is responsible for us running out of ink. I would agree. <laughs> he wrote his epic letter. A letter from Alexander Hamilton concerning the public conduct and character of John Adams Esquire, President of the United States. Okay, that's that's a strong title. Yeah. <laughs> Str- and strong, I mean, verbose. <laughs> yeah, that's a few ounces of ink right there. Right. No wonder our ink is gone. The title alone was 10 pounds. This is where Hamilton truly went off the rails. In the musical, when, when uh, he drops a stack of papers from the balcony and he says, Sit down, John, you fat mother. That was a reference to this pamphlet. And... Mm-hmm. It may have played some role in costing Adams the election, but what it really did was more damage to Hamilton himself. Yeah. So Washington's gone at this point. There's no military post for Hamilton, no official ties to the government. Hamilton is completely unfettered and free to speak his mind, which is not a good thing. <laughs> so we're going to play a game now. Oh, a game. Yes. I was a little bit sad that you didn't give me an assignment this time. I mean, you ha- you gave me assignments in the last two episodes, and I felt like, wow, this is my one source of agency <laughs> in this podcast. It was switching it up. But um, now we're playing a game, so I'm kind of excited. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of a game. You don't have to do much during this game, oh. which is why it's going to be hard for you. Oh, no. I'm going to read a quote that Hamilton said about Adams, and you have to do your best to not connect the sentiments to any modern figures. Okay. Oh, no. I'm going to be really bad at this. Let's begin. Okay. Hamilton said that the president does not possess the talents adapted to the administration of government and that there are great and intrinsic defects in his character which unfit him for the chief magistrate. Okay. (laughs) All right. I'm not allowed to say anything. I mean, you can. If you didn't ever, it would probably be a boring game. Okay. All right. Well, already there's clearly a figure in mind who's inept at running a government. I don't know what you're talking about. Moving on. (laughs) I'm not allowed to say anymore. Okay, keep going. He has certain fixed points of character which tend naturally to the detriment of any cause of which he is the chief, of any administration of which he is the head. Detrimental character. Okay, definitely. Okay, keep going. Hamilton wrote that Adams had a vanity without bounds and a jealousy capable of discoloring every object. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, yes, I have a figure in mind, but at the same time, I almost feel like the figure in my mind is worse than these two. Hamilton said, by Adams's ill humors and jealousies, he has already divided and distracted the supporters of the government, that he has furnished deadly weapons to its enemies by unfounded accusations. Wow. So lies, lots of lies. That he has made great progress in undermining the ground which was gained for the government by his predecessor. Mm-hmm. And that there is real cause to dismantling, apprehend. Dismantling important institutions. Okay. And that there is real cause to apprehend it might totter, if not fall, under his future auspices. Yeah. That, I mean, that's Trump. Sorry. I lost. <laughs> We're going to keep playing. Okay. He said, this gentleman is infected with some visionary notions. When we know visionary was not a good thing. Mm -hmm. He presumes that... You're not going to read the whole document, are you? That What do you think I printed that for? (laughs) (laughs) He presumes that every citizen who is his enemy is the confederate of one or another of those foreign powers. Mm -hmm. So citizens who disagree with him are un-American and his enemy. Right, right. Again, like he's kind of accusing him of fascism a little bit. 
As the president nominates his ministers and may displace them as he pleases, it must be his own fault if he be not surrounded by men who for ability and integrity deserve his confidence. Mm -hmm. He says that when Adams refrains from the counsel of his advisors, when he doesn't listen to his secretaries and uh, advisors, he is very apt to fall into the hands of miserable intriguers with whom his self-love is more at ease, and who without difficulty slide into his confidence and by flattery govern him. Wow. Okay. Now we're going to move on to Adams's temper and the things that Hamilton said about that. (laughs) He criticized the disgusted egotism, the distempered jealousy, and the unforgivable indiscretion of Mr. Adams's temper. He wrote, It is a fact that he is often liable to paroxysms of anger, which deprive him of self-command and produce very outrageous behavior to those who approach him. Most, if not all, his ministers and several distinguished members of the Houses of Congress have been humiliated by the effects of these gusts of passion. He's one to talk about gusts of passion. Yeah, it takes one to know one, I guess. I guess so. And then he talks a little bit about Adams's jealousy of military heroes. He says, wonderful, passing wonderful, that a eulogy of the dead patriot and hero of the admired and beloved Washington consecrated in the affections and reverence of his country should, in any shape, be irksome to the ears of his successor. This sounds just like one of those hate texts or emails that are going back and forth that you wish you had edited or not sent in the first place. Oh, there's no editing on on Hamilton's part. Right, exactly. He had some issues with that, I think. Yeah, but I mean, it, it, it tells you something that these words kind of resonate, and it seems mm-hmm. like they could be said today. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And it makes you wonder, like, was was Adams that bad, or was Hamilton just off his rocker? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, I don't know if he was off his rocker, but he definitely liked the hyperbolic language, and for he sure. was passionate, but also loved exaggerating and, like I said, manic. <laughs> yeah. So, I think, I mean, you can look at these words in a couple of different ways. You could say, hey, people have always been accusing presidents of being terrible and napped assholes since the Mm -hmm. beginning. Mm -hmm. Or you could look at it like hyperbolic language has always existed in politics. And it's a shame because it desensitizes us to times when it might actually not be hyperbolic. Right. When it might be truthful. The pamphlet didn't go over well, um, except in Alexander Hamilton's own mind. Ron Chernow called it an extended tantrum. Exactly. And that's exactly what it was. Yeah. Yeah. It's very much like that crying wolf situation. If you're having a tantrum about Adams, it's when you have a tantrum about, you know, an actual fascist, then it's just not heard as much. Jefferson and Madison, I mean, they just kind of sat back and looked at this letter and they're like, the Federalists are destroying themselves. Great. But we should look and ask, was Hamilton right about any of this? He may have had some points when it came to Adams's temperament. Now, I love John Adams. Me too. But I do think it might have been pretty hard to work for him. Yeah, I mean, he seems pretty grumpy. And he admitted as much himself. Um, when he was responding to a survey from our old friend Skelton Jones. <laughs> Skelton. Skelton. He wrote, my temper in general has been tranquil, except when any instance of extraordinary madness, deceit, hypocrisy, ingratitude, treachery, or perfidy has suddenly struck me. Perfidy, I love that. Yeah, so basically, anytime things get difficult... Like one might imagine when working in the highest ranks of national politics. Mm -hmm. So Adams is fine. Or just in our household. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he's fine until things are difficult and then he goes mad. That's a great trait. (laughs) Reminds me of someone else I know. 
Adams once told Benjamin Rush that there had been very many times in my life when I have been so agitated in my own mind as to have no consideration at all of the light in which my words, actions, and even writings would be considered by others. Yeah. So he has a little bit of insight into his lack of insight. Yeah, but then it keeps happening, which is the problem. (laughs) What are you going to do? You have insight, but then there's no change. So that's... that's... (laughs) Baby steps. (laughs) So what's the point of the insight if you're not going to do anything about it? I guess it just uh, helps justify your depression. (laughs) Adams also admitted that he refused to suffer in silence. I sighed, sobbed, and groaned, and sometimes screeched and screamed. And I must confess to my shame and sorrow that I sometimes swore. (laughs) So if this is what he admits, I mean, just imagine what it would be like to really disagree with Adams. Everyone knew that this letter made Hamilton look bad, except Hamilton. He only heard the praise. He actually wanted to gather more anecdotes and write an expanded second edition of this letter. Oh, gosh. His friends basically had to tell him, no, 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 no. Stop while you're ahead or stop when you're behind even. and <laughs> Stop. I, and speaking of the damage that it did to Federalists, Adam said that Hamilton and company killed themselves and indicted me for the murder. Yeah, that's, again, the hatred was driving things instead of his experience or knowledge. Yeah. Adams wrote a response, um, but he wisely decided not to send it. But basically, he anything you could say against Adams, he would defend himself. So the election of 1800 actually comes. And like the earlier elections, the person with the most votes gets to be president. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this time, the runner-up gets to kill Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> what? Okay, that's not part of the rules. <laughs> um, but after a tied vote between Jefferson and Burr that went to the House of Representatives, Jefferson eventually wins mm-hmm. and Aaron Burr becomes the vice president. Mm-hmm. And four years later, Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr end up in a duel. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to dive into that here, but let's just say that only Burr walked away. Right. The nicest thing that John Adams said about Hamilton after his death was no one wished to get rid of Hamilton in that way. <laughs> maybe maybe the way he wanted to get rid of him was him pulling the trigger. <laughs> maybe. maybe. Uh, Adams had no problem speaking ill of the dead. Right. And in a way, Adams kind of won their feud by living 22 years longer than Hamilton and spending all those years continuing to smear his name. Wow. That's just not fair. No. Just two years after Hamilton died, Adams wrote one of the most insulting things he'd ever written about Hamilton in a letter to his friend, uh, Dr. Benjamin Rush old bra head mm-hmm. and bloody bones himself. Mm-hmm. So Adams based his insult on a, a wild like pseudo medical theory that came from Jonathan Swift's satire, A Tale of the Tub. And the theory says that troubled brains of aggressive men must be overspread by vapors ascending from the lower faculties. What? So so genital vapors? Yes. So his Genital vapors. His brain disorder originated in his balls. Wow. Okay. So, so, aka syphilis. <laughs> I mean, what? What is that? I, that would be a medical theory that would explain this, but <laughs> this is a little different. More, yeah. A little more what? What is this? What are you? What are you talking about? <laughs> I will explain it. Adams goes on to say that the collected part of the semen raises and inflames and becomes a dust or a gas, and it ascends the spinal duct to the brain. Oh my gosh. So, I mean, yeah. so sniffing in fumes yeah. from your genitals that are impacting your neurology. That's exactly right. I'm okay. so glad that you get it. Uh, yeah, clearly. Yeah, it's science. 
Um, so if those fumes go to the brain, then you get like mad kings and conquerors and, and whatever Alexander Hamilton was. But there's another way. So he's claiming Alexander Hamilton had the genital fumes. Yeah. And that's what made him so crazy and mad. Okay. Well, or just plain old mental disorder. No, it's the fumes. It's the, it's the genital fumes, the ball fumes. Always. <laughs> but if instead of going to the brain, those fumes descend upon the anus... What? And conclude in a fistula, like literally tearing a new asshole, <gasps> then everything's fine. Wait, <laughs> once you have a new asshole, everything's fine? If those fumes go to your brain, bad. If those fumes tear you a new asshole and leave, fine. So was Adams just sitting around with a fan in front of his genitalia, making sure his own fumes go backwards? I don't think he thought that his fumes were bad. He just thought Hamilton had bad genital fumes that went to the brain instead of the asshole. Is that what he's claiming? I couldn't have said it better myself. Okay, I'm starting to get a little sick. All right. (laughs) I think you need to move on. uh, Yeah, you might need a bag. Okay. Oh, God, it gets worse? Okay, go ahead. Not really. So this fistula theory... It might be based on Louis the Fourteenth, who had an anal fistula operated on by his doctor. What's a fistula? A fistula is literally when another um, hole, a hole, isn't yes. that like an abscess? It's when there's a hole that shouldn't be there that comes from like the rectum to the surface. It's like it's like a little extra asshole. It's, it's, it's <laughs> I've like never a, heard of this. It's like a tear. It's like something that shouldn't happen. That might is it happen. in your asshole? Because that I get, but it's had... in your in your rectum. Okay, so imagine oh, it's in the rectum. Imagine you're in your rectum. Okay, and you see your your anus. Okay, and you're like, okay, there's the light. That's the way out. Uh huh. I think I'm gonna tunnel another way out of this body. Oh, Jesus, that sounds really painful. Actually, it is very painful. Well, I I've just heard. I was picturing a whole other asshole open somehow, like an abscess somewhere else on your butt. Oh, like a an extra anus. Yes, that's what I thought you were saying. And I, and so I thought this was an imaginary thing. But then when you said there was an actual fistula operated on, I was like, what is happening? No, this is a real medical condition. Yes, no, I get it now. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And please, um, we are not medical doctors. Don't take this medical advice. Yeah, don't fix your own fistu- fistulas. Fistulas. Yeah. No, you need a friend to help with your fistulas. <laughs> it's like it's like IKEA furniture. Don't do it by yourself. Just imagine those little like blank bodies in the directions. Like imagine one guy with, a, with an Allen wrench trying to fix his fistula, and there's a big circle and a slash through that. But then there's two people, two of these like um, IKEA people. I'm so confused. Are, you know, in the directions. Oh, you probably never looked at IKEA directions because I'm the one who's always I can't swearing take, and trying to do those. I can't take IKEA directions, but I do know the swearing from another room with when the Allen wrench keeps dropping and you keep saying "fuck." You know, that's I how know, you put together things. I, <laughs> I know that story, but I don't know what things look like in the IKEA directions because I've avoided those at all costs. But I do like the idea of friendly fistula fixing. Friendly, you know, hire TaskRabbit to fix your fistulas. <laughs> yep. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> Use promo code plotting. <laughs> For TaskRabbit, if you yeah. have a fistula that you need fixing and you want it done in a friendly manner. By someone with no medical knowledge. Hire, use the promo code plotting. Yeah. Task rabbit. You'll want to say that you need a TV mounted, <laughs> but when they get there... <laughs> say you need a, fr- a friendly fistula fixing. And let us know how that goes. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, so this fistula theory, it's probably based on Louis Fourteenth. He had an anal fistula operated on by his doctor in 1686, mm-hmm. and Jonathan Swift suggested that the release of fluids <gasps> through that fistula caused the warmongering king to leave the rest of the world for that time in peace. Okay, well, it's kind of like Lansing. Yeah. You know, an infection. Yeah, kind of. I mean, that helps. It helps you feel better. Yeah. The infection gets out of your body. That's the idea. But it doesn't give me any superhuman powers, unfortunately. No, but I imagine if you're laid up for a while after a surgery, you might not be um, fighting with the rest of the world for a little bit. Right. That's the only truth I see in that one. Okay. Applying that theory to Hamilton, Adams wrote, What a pity it is that our Congress had not known this discovery. And that Alexander Hamilton's project of raising an army of 50,000 men, 10,000 of them to be cavalry, and his projects of sedition laws and alien laws and of new taxes to support his army all arose from a superabundance of secretions, which he could not find whores enough to draw off. And that the same... so disgusting. Yeah. And that the same vapors... Ugh, whores drawing off the secretion. I'm just so disgusted. Wait, wait for it. And that the same vapors produced his lies and slanders by which he totally destroyed his party forever and finally lost his life in the field of honor. Wow. Okay. So. Break it down, please. A lot of thoughts. Yeah, I've, I'm kind of stuck on the secret, the whoring of just, yeah. Oh, yeah. Sucking that's, off his By the way, Superabundance of Secretions, I think, would be a great band name. <laughs> or possibly a great uh, cologne to buy in bulk at, at Costco. <laughs> Kirkland signature, superabundance of secretions. Ew. Trademark pending. <laughs> um, there's a lot going on here. I mean, basically, Adams is saying that these rotten fumes that are festering in his sack because he's not able to find enough horrors to draw them out. He's saying this about Hamilton. Yeah, he's saying that Hamilton... And Hamilton's dead at this point. Yeah, Hamilton died two oh years God, ago. Oh my God, he's still talking about... Not only that, he's saying this is why Hamilton died, why he got in a duel in the first place, because there his weren't enough women working. to draw off the fluid in his sack, and it went to his head, and it turned him into this monster. Oh, wow. He missed his calling as a medical doctor. <laughs> I, I, for sure. Um, and somehow he blames Hamilton for the Alien and Sedition Acts, which we didn't really have time to get into in this episode, but they weren't Hamilton's baby. Like, Adams is the one who signed them into law. Mm-hmm. And even though he may not have loved them, he didn't have a problem with them. He didn't veto any laws, by the mm-hmm. way. Uh, and he should have vetoed that one, but he had no reason to blame Hamilton for them. Mm-hmm. It's just him blaming Hamilton for everything wrong in the world. <laughs> so these these two great minds... I mean, it really is a shame, like we were saying, that they didn't get along better. Yeah, missed opportunity there. There were some things about each other that they just couldn't get past. Adams was probably jealous of the attention and the access that Hamilton always had with Washington. Mm-hmm. And he was probably jealous of Hamilton's military status. It was something that Adams never really had. And he just really thought Hamilton was an intrusive, conniving, perverted, foreign threat. Right. Hamilton really just saw Adams as an angry, hopelessly out of touch, vain leader. Mm -hmm. And they both really screwed with each other's power. And that was unforgivable. And didn't really help anybody. Their feud? No. No, it's not like it. It hurt both of them. And the country. Yeah. 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 Uh, In 1819, Adams wrote, The inquiring mind in future times will find reasons to diminish the glories of some and to increase their esteem of others. Some characters now obscured under a cloud of unpopularity will come out with more luster. Hmm. 
he couldn't have known that in 200 years, the two figures who would come out with the most luster would be himself, thanks to the inquiring mind in future times of David McCullough and the HBO series Mm -hmm. based on his biography. And of course, Alexander Hamilton, thanks to uh, Cherno's biography and Lin-Manuel Miranda's musical masterpiece based on it. Yeah. So Lin-Manuel Miranda, he really didn't have room to include John Adams in his already like three hour musical. And that's fine. But here's a picture that I love. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. Lin-Manuel and Paul Giamatti, oh, who so played wonderful. Adams so well in the HBO series. Yes. Backstage at Hamilton, squaring off with Lin-Manuel Miranda with Christopher Jackson in the background. Yeah. They're making a face at each other as if they're adversaries. But yes. I mean, they look like they're about to kiss. My um, like my, seconds later. <laughs> okay, I don't know if I read that into it, but yeah. No, the, it's, There's a, love it's there. a playful. It's a playfulness. Oh yeah. My quarantine dream is for Lin Manuel Miranda to write a duet for himself and Paul Giamatti as Adams. They could even do it over Zoom. <laughs> and Giamatti sung before in movies. It could happen. I just so want to be hanging out with them. Oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we'll always have the series and the musical and all of their wonderful letters just dripping with hate. Mm-hmm. They're both such avid writers. Yeah. This episode is scheduled to come out on Election Day. Ugh. So if you're eligible to vote and you haven't already, then stop being a puppy and get to the polls. Yeah, it's so necessary. And you have to be a part of this story and get out and vote. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, tell your friends, write a review, and consider joining our Patreon family for exclusive extras like cutscenes, bloopers, bonus podcasts, a lot of innuendo that I'm sure we're going to cut from this episode. Yeah, the only way to hear those is going to be becoming a patron. Yes, you can reach us at the Facebook page for Plotting Through the Presidents or at plotpod.com. Next week, we'll be back with a mysterious death in a founder's family. Until then, thank you for plotting. Thank you very much for plotting. Hamilton had bad genital fumes.